Good morning from Japan. Uh, good evening, evening for U.S. and good afternoon, uh, good evening for U.S. and Europe. Uh, my name is Soshi Uchida, along with the uh, program chair of this webinar. Uh, today's webinar is Future Hip Preservation Research, What Else Do We Need to Know? Uh, I'm a little bit getting into in the introduction here. Uh, we are very excited to have a great program in front of you today. Uh, special thanks to my friend who made this possible to spend this time, uh, Mr. Vikas Kanjura from uh, UK, the answer we need from registry, Professor Orfemi Ariani from Canada, the answer we need from clinical trials, Dr. Joshua Harris from Houston, U United States, uh, the answer we need from biomechanics. Dr. Danny Goel from Canada, the answer we do we need from virtual reality education research. And finally, we have Dr. Maria Roxana Biamonte Guerra from Brazil, who will uh, moderate the discussion following the presentation. So we entitled the webinar, The Future Hip Preservation Research. What else do we need to know? to give the audience idea, please institution. So let's get started. Uh, Dr. Picasso Kanjura. So my remit really is to speak to you about uh, the answers that we need uh, in hip preservation as far as the registries are concerned. I bring you greetings from our biomedical campus uh, in Cambridge and any one of you who's interested to come and visit us would be a pleasure to host you now in this post-COVID uh, era. These are my disclosures and none of them are particularly specifically relevant to this uh, talk. So what I want to do is to give you a bit of a background to what the non-arthroplasty hip registry is in the UK, what we've been doing, the results that we've been getting uh, from the registry and what the future answers uh, that we need from the registry that could help progress uh, the cause of hip uh, preservation. Uh, the mantra really is that if you can't measure it, you can't improve it. And that's where it all uh, really starts. So you've got to start measuring it. We had a fairly successful uh, joint registry in the UK, specifically for joint replacements. That's the National Joint Registry. Uh, but the number of procedures uh, in terms of non-arthroplasty was increasing rapidly at the time. As you can see from 2002 to 2013, a fairly uh, high increase, both in the UK and US. And really there needed to be some form of a registry where we could actually capture the data for all these procedures to see whether they were efficacious or not. And therefore, should the government be funding uh, these procedures or not? And that's really was the rationale of starting the non-arthroplasty hip registry. So it was established by the British Hip Society in 2012, and we celebrated our 10th anniversary uh, last year. The aims of the NHR were pretty simple at the time. We wanted to assess the efficacy of this type of surgery, any kind of non-arthroplasty surgery, to provide feedback to the surgeons with validated outcome data and eventually improving patient care. So the registry portal, this is how it exists. You've got the uh, dashboard for the surgeons. As far as the patients are concerned, we've got a GDPR compliant consent form, which they sign up to. And then they've got two specific scores that they fill up 
the IHOT 12, which is a specific score for the young adults with hip pathology, and the EQ5D, which is a generic one. And then you've got two pages for the surgeons to fill up after uh, the procedure, fairly intuitive, and you can set it on default mode and literally takes about a minute following your operation to fill in this. Uh, you get automatic emails sent to the patients at six months, 12 months, and 24 months. The data is owned by the British Ship Society. It's the world's only national registry of its kind, apart from the Danish registry, obviously. And I would like to think that we are leading the world in the field of registry data for hip preservation surgery, and I'll show you how in a minute. We've got over 17,000 pathways uh, now in the registry with uh, over 100 uh, unique surgeons contributing uh, their data to the registry. If you look at uh, the number of surgeons with patient procedures, you can clearly see uh, that the number of surgeons who are performing more than 500 or about five, but the majority in the UK are probably uh, performing over 40 uh, over 50 procedures. Again, in terms of age distribution, uh, we would like to see that that uh, majority of the procedures are actually happening between the ages of 15 uh, to 45, as far as arthroscopic uh, surgery is concerned. In terms of the acetabular procedures, uh, this used to be labral debridement, but labral repair has just taken over labral debridement, and the registry data is clearly showing that. In terms of the femoral procedures, the commonest one performed is the CAM uh, excision or osteochondroplasty. If you look at the outcomes now that we're getting uh, from the registry for a femoral tablet impingement, if you take the whole cohort, uh, you can see that the IHOG 12 is jumping from an average of 32.9 to 58.2 at six months and then remains similar at about 12 months. And the same thing happening on the EQ5D as well. And similar results seen if you actually dissect uh, the CAM lesion alone, both on the IHOT 12 and the EQ5D, and also on the pincer side alone, uh, again on the IHOT 12 and the EQ5D. Uh, but if you look at, uh, if you dissect these results a bit further, you can see that only about 67% of the patients are getting the MCID. That's the clinically important difference. Uh, if we take that uh, 13 for IHOT 12, and only about 47% of the patients get the substantial clinical benefit. If you take the, uh, that at 28 points on the IHOT 12. And you're beginning to see that outcomes may not be universally successful and may be dependent on age, a BMI and the pin solution. So picking winners uh, in the future is definitely going to be the key. And I think uh, going forward, stratification is where the registry data is going to help us with because not all patients are getting the outcomes that we think that they are getting. Now, if you look at another aspect in terms of labral debridement versus labral repair, and there was a fair bit of controversy uh, around this as to which one is doing better, couple of randomized controlled trials as well. In our series in the registry, uh, both the Astabla labeled repair and debridement techniques were associated with significantly improved uh, early reported outcomes, regardless of age or sex. But have a look at this. About 65% uh, of the patients achieved MCID, but only again, only 47% of the patients are achieving substantial clinical benefit. But, and if we dissect that further again, we can see that 
a higher proportion of the patients are achieving the SCB in the labral repair group as compared with the debridement group, which was statistically significant. So again, the registry data helping us dissect these results further. On the periastabular uh, osteotomy side, we are again seeing a similar effect where both the IHOT-12 and the EQ-5D uh, are improving uh, in the shorter term, but obviously it remains to be seen whether these results continue to the five uh, to the 10 year mark. So in summary, what we've got up till now is that uh, clearly there is significant uh, improvement in PROMs at the six to 12 months early stages for CAM, pincer, and periastabular osteotomies. But more importantly, we need to understand the nuances of why some patients are not improving or getting the substantial clinical benefit or why only 50% of the patients are getting SCB from this high data. We are also able to compare your individual data to uh, the national data, and that's what the registry allows. And again, this can be finessed a bit further from disease-specific uh, to age-specific as well. So the registry over the last 10 years has certainly helped us in getting all this, but I think the three main areas where we go forward, where the registries could be helping us further, would be to get nested trials uh, in the registry. So randomized controlled trials nested within the registry where you've got access to over 100 surgeons who could be contributing data, uh, and you could actually finish the trial off fairly quickly, answer specific questions. We've also obviously got uh, machine learning and AI tools coming in now, and we've done the first uh, study of its kind within the registry where we've looked at uh, reducing the number of questions on the IHOT 12, and potentially we can get away with six questions only, again, thanks to uh, the registry data. As I've said before, uh, prediction scores of which patients are actually definitely going to improve following this intervention and the nuances of finding uh, disease stratification and picking winners is where registries are going to be helping us pick time. And if we actually go for a global registry, which remains the aim of uh, ISHA, that's the International Society for Health Preservation, then we could be finding out population differences uh, based on that as well. And finally, within our own registry, we want to link this data to the national joint registry data, finally to be able to guess and actually find out which of these patients are eventually going into an arthroplasty, if at all they do, and what's the percentage of these patients actually going into an arthroplasty and accurately follow up the lifespan of the patient's hip joint. So I think these are probably the four major areas where registries are going to help us in the future. But I remain most excited with the first two, that is nested uh, randomized controlled trials and machine learning uh, and artificial intelligence. On that note, I'd like to invite you to uh, share a few more of these results. Uh, so do, do try and attend our annual meeting from the 8th to 10th of March in uh, Edinburgh. That's the BHS uh, annual meeting. And thank you very much uh, for your kind attention. Thank you, thank you, uh, Mr. Vikas. Uh, great, great talks. Uh, next speaker will be uh, Pro uh, Professor Femi Ayani from Canada. Uh, the answer we need from clinical trial. Uh, please start. Well, my charge really is to talk about um, you know the upcoming trials and where I think FAI needs to go in the near future as far as um, you know the uh, challenges that we all face and see in clinic every day. 
And here we go. Um, had some success there after a little brief uh, delay. But I'm really grateful first to Isikos uh, for organizing this and to have a, a great panel, a great uh, moderator and uh, chair really leading this effort. And I think that um, we're all here because we're trying to make our patients better. And we're all here because we also care about hip preservation, which is great to see a large audience today. So the question I pose is, you know, what are the answers we need from clinical trials? And I'll share some of our experience in order to help facilitate the discussion. So here are my disclosures relevant to research and um, otherwise. So moving forward, we published this paper several years ago, and this is sort of what we tend to see when we look at how innovation is adopted across all technologies and across the globe. So if you look at this bell curve distribution in any presentation or in any new technology emerges, you initially have your innovators, the people who thought, well, you know what, hip preservation is important. We must figure out if it works. And they adopt the surgery such as hip arthroscopy early. And then you have the early adopters. Many of are on this um, you know, uh, webinar today who tend to then go and say, you know what, there's something about hip preservation that works. Eventually you get the late majority and then eventually the skeptics or laggards come in, as you can see on that chart and on that um, you know, graph. Along the same timeline, you tend to see hip arthroscopy in that S-wave curve starting to get pick up steam and get rapid adoption. And as you're having this breakdown from innovators, early adopters, early majority and late majority, you have the studies follow the same classic pattern. So the innovators will come up with case reports, case series, and very, very early conceptual papers. Next, the early adopters will talk about the broadening indications, the short-term outcomes. Next, as you move across that time grid, you start to assess the procedures. When many surgeons are starting to do this, you start to get early randomized control trials, which you see in the procedure assessment, because you'd like to see if the operations work. And then eventually you start to get in that last column, the long-term studies, the registries, the long-term data, the five tenure studies. So like in any innovation that comes into the field, you're seeing the same pattern in hip arthroscopy. We've moved past the case reports. We've moved past the early, you know, um, single surgeon series. We're now having substantial trials. And then eventually we're seeing as Dr. Kenjuja presented, well-designed, big data that's coming to inform how we do things. So I think that we are really moving along that continuum and it's very important to see that hip arthroscopy is on that upslope as far as where we are, the tipping point for adoption. The challenge, however, was, and still is to some degree, we have a lot of level four and level five evidence, which are uncontrolled, typically single center, single surgeon series, and we need more trials. So when we saw this presentation and this paper that we published looking at data, that was a call to action for us to really try McMaster with colleagues across the globe to put out some level one prospective randomized controlled trial data to really evaluate if hep preservation, particularly arthroscopy, was effective. So our journey in order to study hip arthroscopy was inspired by evidence and um, collaboration with expertise. So the first thing when we're looking at trials, looking at hip preservation is first you ask yourself, what should we really be studying? And we looked at what the most important thing or concept that patients have when they come to see us is really a concept of, does my pain get better? So this study helped us choose our primary outcome in the systematic review that pain was the most important concept for our patients. Then we asked ourselves, which surgeons should be in a randomized controlled trial? 
So we did a systematic review to look at the learning curve. And we found that you have to have at least 30 cases a year at a minimum to have the skill required to identify pathology and treat it appropriately. So that helped us design our inclusion criteria for surgeons. Then we asked ourselves, what should be the indications for FAI surgery? And that helped us define our inclusion criteria. And then finally, what are the complications after this operation? And that again helps us define how we should track complications. So whenever we're designing our trials, like most of you do, you look at the systematic reviews of the literature to help you design your studies. And every systematic review we did was building a building block to figure out how to really ask an important question as far as the evidence of FAI surgery. And finally, we looked at the value of preoperative injection to determine if a patient qualifies for surgery. So here's a team you would see. We have a collaborative team in one of our meetings here, radiologists, orthopedic surgeons, physical therapists working together, and collaboration is a lot of fun, as we all know. So we went ahead and conducted the first trial, which is the femoris tabular impingement randomized control trial, where one group would get an atroscopic lavage and a labrum would be repaired if it was unstable only. And then we had another group who had complete FAI surgery with bony correction and labral uh, repair as deemed necessary. And here's our publication, which was awarded the Houston Award from the American Journal of Sports Medicine. And what did we find? We found that certainly at one year, they were seemingly equal, but as you got to the second year, there's a significant revision rate in those who did not have an osteochondroplasty for correcting the bony impingement. So the longevity of your operation is highly determined by how well you correct your impingement. And I think that's a very important finding. But like any good study, it's not the first study that gives you the information, it's actually the subsequent or secondary studies. So you actually get as much information from the secondary papers than sometimes a primary paper. So what else did we learn from doing this randomized control trial? Well, we learned this, that there's a low adverse event when it comes to doing these randomized control trials. We also learned that usually the patients after FAI surgery improve dramatically by six months, but beyond six months, the gains are minimal as far as significantly different. We also learned that the time to operation is significantly different if reoperation rather, if you correct the impingement compared to if you don't. You have a 2.5 times risk of reoperation if you don't correct impingement, correct, com uh, confirm, uh, compared to rather doing a lavage or labor repair only. So the FAI correction is quite important. We also learned that a lower body mass index and age, typically sub age 30, was important in your outcomes. So many things we learned from our studies helped us inform what we do in clinical practice now. Again, highlighting how comparative randomized trial studies really helps you figure out the best patients for your intervention. But that's just the past now, and now we're moving forward. And the questions we have include what's causing this? What works technically? How do we fix cartilage? Because we are trying to preserve the hip joint, and we certainly have a better understanding of how to correct FAI, but how do we correct the cartilage that we are also dearly protecting? And finally, what is the natural history of the FAI or even dysplasia as far as degenerative change? So when it comes to causation, people have talked about it across the globe, and there are many experts who are listening as well. And they think, and we all believe, that something about activity in that critical age of 12 to 14 may trigger the development of FAI morphology. And there have been some case series and case control studies that really tried to help us evaluate that robustly. So we took this as a challenge once more to really try and identify if this is really true. And so we have the preview study in which 200 pediatric patients or asymptomatic volunteers, I would say, who have the ability to wear a Fitbit-like device or tracker 
track their activity for two full years and MRI their hips sequentially and annually to really try and identify does FAI morphology develop and does it have a relationship with activities such as sports and really trying to determine the relationship between volume of activity and impingement morphology in a prospective longitudinal fashion to get some really good data that will help us all guide activity with youth. We had our pilot uh, trial recently published and we found some interesting findings. I would say that those who are engaged in higher levels of activity, the sports specialists, seem to have a higher risk of asymptomatic FAI development. However, they also had better quality of life at two years following the initial uh, assessment. So something about activity is good for peer development, social skills, interactivity, self-confidence, but at the same time, perhaps too much may develop asymptomatic FAI for now, which longitudinally may cause symptoms. So something to think about there. We're grateful for all of our participants across the globe, South Korea, Netherlands, Canada, et cetera. So what makes surgery acceptable? You know, we all do this FAI surgery. We think we're precise with it. And some people will post their pictures on Instagram or on social media and get criticized. And we're all looking at it like art sometimes. So instead of accepting that as the gold standard, a subjective outcome, really came together and put together a global group in a modified Delphi voting type format to figure out what makes FAI surgery um, you know, acceptable. And we had a really comprehensive multi-continent strategy to try and figure this out. We came together as experts across the globe, and we recently published that, and I encourage you to look at that publication. And we did find that, yes, we could define that we'd like to reduce the offset of the hip. We'd like to eliminate the crossover or reduce it, but absolute numbers as far as what the cutoffs are, are difficult to establish. So certainly we believe that correcting impingement is important, but we still have more work to do to refine what the parameters are to be deemed acceptable. But that is what it's gonna take. People working together across jurisdictions to try and really inform clinical practice across the globe, working hand in hand. So our mission in the Canadian group, which we hope to work together globally, is really to understand how do we evaluate cartilage? Like I mentioned before, we do significant work in correcting morphology to protect cartilage. But when we do repair cartilage, we don't really always have the best outcome measures or metrics radiographically to measure how well we're doing. So that's another challenge. How do we repair cartilage? And how do we ensure that we can truly identify if we've done a robust um, job as far as repair of cartilage? And of course, technology is changing. We have microfracture historically. We have augmented repair. We have um, autogenous-based um, you know, therapies and so many other cartilage-based therapies that have limitations that we need to improve upon. And that's another challenge to our audience to work together to try and find out how we fix cartilage. We're working on the modified Delphi format and that is moving along, but I encourage you to reach out as well if you'd like to join and help us figure out how we understand cartilage repair in the hip. So that's another big question. The next steps really are a randomized trial that we're trying to conduct looking at once the FAI has caused intraarticular disruption, how do you fix cartilage? You see this in your scopes, you see this every day, you see patients who come in with debonding acetabular cartilage. It's a, not a nice thing to see, but when you see that, how do you repair it? I would say that other participants in this call, approaching 200, we're all doing different things. So I think the next randomized trial should really evaluate how we treat intraarticular disruption so that we can take a patient like this who has morphology and is active and prevent this outcome that requires this operation. 
the hip replacement is still a wonderful operation, but can we actually make a natural history difference and stop osteoarthritis? So I think we're taking a programmatic approach, looking at the pediatric, the young adults, the early arthritic patient, and together understanding cartilage, how well we're repairing the joint, and further understanding activity at youth and FAI development, as well as the natural history of FAI who develops osteoarthritis are all important challenges. So with that, I thank you for your time. Uh, next speaker will be uh, Dr. Joshua Harris from United States. Uh, he's going to talk about the answer we need from uh, biomechanics. Joshua, go, please go ahead. Thank you, Soshi. And uh, thank you to uh, Isakos and Laura for uh, the invitation to speak. Uh, Femi, for your, uh, your great talks. Um, I get the joy of speaking about biomechanics. Uh, biomechanics we need from biomechanics in the field of hip preservation. And uh, in a former life, uh, my training prior to medicine uh, was in physics and engineering. And so uh, this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. And so uh, I, I hope you enjoy it uh, over the next uh, eight minutes. Here are my disclosures, uh, none of which are relevant to the talk. And during the talk, uh, I really want to talk about what are really the three most important parts of arthroscopic hip preservation surgery. And that's the labrum, the cam, and the capsule. And so we'll start with labral preservation. And the goal of labral preservation surgery is to really try to preserve the suction seal of the labrum, as you can see in the illustration here. And you can do that in a variety of ways. You can do that with debridement, repair, augmentation, or reconstruction. Yeah, and so this is really illustrating the suction seal, the biomechanical suction seal. And with a segmental reconstruction, as you can see here, it's restoring that biomechanical goal. And so please advance the slide. And we don't get that cadaver view in the operating room. And typically when we're looking at the suction seal, this suction seal is arthroscopically viewed, as you can see here. Is the video playing? I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, it looks like it's playing. For okay. Well, the video is not playing on my screen, so I, I apologize again. Um, but we're really trying to establish the suction seal, and that's with labral repair, labral preservation. And please advance the slide. And recent research out of Rush and Dr. Shane Nose Lab has shown with simple labral repair versus circumferential reconstruction, we may be missing something. And the goal of this talk is to really determine well, what are we missing from biomechanics. And circumferential reconstruction really may be something of a misnomer. And so please advance the slide. And so I think what we may be missing is the connection to the transverse acetabular ligament. And circumferential reconstruction is a misnomer because when we do a reconstruction, even if it is from the TAL to the TAL, we're not actually directly hooking it up. And that's why the segmental reconstruction that we saw with Dr. Philippon's biomechanical video did restore a seal. And then when you look at Dr. No's video in the previous slide, it did not restore the seal. And so please advance the slide. And this is uh, a video from Dr. Brian White in Colorado, who is technically one of the best labral reconstruction surgeons uh, I, I've ever seen. And he can perform a perfect reconstruction. But as you can see here, the very front aspect does not hook up to the transverse acetabular ligament. Please advance the slide. And because of that, because of the inability to restore that TAL, the pressure and the load may increase. And from a study from over 25 years ago, we show that if you don't hook up the TAL, you may lose stability in the hip. 
please advance the slide. And the analogy to this is with meniscus transplantation. We know from meniscus transplant that if you do a soft tissue only meniscus transplantation, the meniscus may extrude and the exact same concept applies to the labral reconstruction as well. Please advance. And so does the seal matter? Um, I believe the seal does. However, we do not yet have enough evidence to quantitatively objectively determine this because we've seen all four of these potential outcomes here. Some cases you have a good seal and the patient does well. Sometimes they have a good seal and the patient does poorly and vice versa. Sometimes there's a poor seal with either a repair or reconstruction. The patient does fine. And sometimes they correlate and the poor seal, the patient does poorly. And so what I want to show you on this top right part of the screen, you can actually see that with certain proprietary systems, you can actually measure the strength of the seal with either newtons or pounds of force to actually quantitatively determine how strong this seal is. Please advance the slide. And as Vickis was saying earlier, you can't manage what you don't measure. And so uh, my contention is that as hip preservation surgeons, we objectively try to quantify this. And so please advance. And so now moving on to the cam. So we know that with impingement, as defined by the Warwick Agreement, that it is a motion and position dependent entity, as you can see here. Please advance. And Jorge Chala, uh, this is probably one of the best videos to really illustrate the cam. And his video that you can see here with a cam and then the correction of the cam, you are really taking something of a square peg in a round hole and making it a round ball and socket to restore the normal biomechanics. Please advance the slide. And the search for the perfect spherical femoroplasty has unfortunately led to some outcomes in which overcorrections have occurred. Um, that has uh, been borne out in our literature to significantly worse patient reported outcomes and also a much higher conversion rate to total hip arthroplasty. Please advance the slide. And so what are we missing in the correction of the cam? What are we missing in trying to make this a perfect round ball and socket? And I think probably one of the biggest things is the femoral version. And as you can see here, there are multiple different ways to go about measuring version. You can use CT, you can use MRI, but it needs to be measured. And so please advance the slide. And as you can see here from an editorial published in arthroscopy from Omer Maidan, treating hip impingement without a CT scan, you might as well operate with a blindfold. And so um, apart from the, the catchy title, it really rings home an important point that we need to measure version. Uh, Brian Kelly's morphologic matrix, as you can see here, really looks at the lateral center edge angle, the alpha angle and the femoral version. And if you're not collecting version, you're missing an important part in the patient's subjective outcomes and also their range of motion. Please advance the slide. And the reason that's important is because we know that version affects rotational motion um, even more than the presence or absence of the cam. The cam will affect flexion, but the version affects the internal rotation. And given the fact that the range of femoral version is 86 degrees, as you can see here, um, that's incredibly important in having both preoperative and intraoperative and postoperative discussions with your patients. And so please advance the slide. And so the final part, uh, I want to talk about the capsule. Um, as Dr. Abrams has said here, not repairing the capsule after arthroscopy, what were we thinking? And so uh, I believe that the gold standard is if you open something up, you should close it. And as you can see here, even if you close an interportal capsulotomy in the lab biomechanically with external rotation of the hip, you can actually disrupt this capsule repair. And remember the capsule is a ligament. It's the iliofemoral ligament. And if you have an analogy of the ACL. The ACL is a ligament and remember how ACL repairs did. They didn't work and we went over to ACL reconstruction. So we're repairing a capsule, but we're really doing a ligament repair when we do capsule repairs. And so please advance the slide. 
And so my capsular management goals that I teach our, our residents and our fellows, it's makes the capsulotomy big enough to treat everything, but absolutely no bigger. And so I try to minimize my inner portal cut, which is a perpendicular cut. And if I make a T, which is most of the time, avoid cutting the zona orbicularis. And so as you can see here on the bottom two photos, you can make a very small inner portal only capsulotomy that is no bigger than 12 to 15 millimeters at the most and comprehensively correct the cam and fix your labrum in virtually every single case. And so minimal iatrogenic disruption of tissue. Please advance the slide. And so what are we missing with capsular management? I think probably the biggest thing is this video that you can see right here. This is a video that really illustrates the role of the zona orbicular as well. And with extension, you can see how the zona has a bellows effect in constricting the neck. But as you flex the hip, as you see, that bellows and that resistance to axial distraction goes away. And so disruption of the zona is likely not restored even after a perfect capsular repair. So trying to not disrupt the zona, if you make any degree of capsulotomy down the distal iliofemoral ligament is absolutely an important part of capsular management. And so please advance the slide. And so, um, again, I want to apologize for the technical difficulties in going over the labrum, the cam, and the capsule, uh, but I do believe that biomechanics has an incredibly important role for setting up clinical studies within the future of hip preservation. And again, thank you to Soshi and Isikos uh, for uh, the invitation to speak. And um, again, I want to say thank you. Okay. Okay. Next speaker will be uh, Dr. Danny Goel from Canada. Uh, he's going to talk about the answers we need from virtual reality education research. So special thanks to the faculty and to Isikos for allowing me to talk a little bit about some new exciting innovation known as virtual reality. And, uh, well, and greetings from Vancouver. I, I do have a disclosure, which I'll share some of which in the presentation. I have a direct uh, disclosure with Precision OS, the company that I'm going to share some of the software from. So my challenge uh, for this discussion was to evaluate education as we learn arthroscopy. And it made me sort of think a little bit more about what are the what are arthroscopic skills? How do we learn them? And as I was digging into it, being a shoulder arthroscopist myself and then learning from some of the people in the panel as well as uh, in the audience, is these the things that we need to think about when we're learning any new procedure through a scope, patient setup, which, where, and why we're using the typical instrumentation we have access to, really having a comprehensive understanding of normal anatomy and being able to interpret abnormal anatomy on pre-op imaging, interpreting three-dimensional pathoanatomy through a scope, and then drawing a translation of that pathoanatomy with an intraoperative C-arm, and then parallelizing the arthroscopic view with imaging. And then, of course, applying expert maneuvers, which we learn from some of the best in the field when we go and visit them in person or otherwise as to what they do when, when they want to get access to a particular part of the hip in this case. And it's for this reason why the learning curve for all procedures, whether it be orthopedic or not, is on this sort of learning journey where we practice on patients early on because we don't have the experience. And to move along the journey, it's very time and cost inefficient. And this has been borne out in the literature. This is a paper by Dr. Dome who looked at 
what are the um, the drivers for volume to get somebody to a level of proficiency in hip arthroscopy? And it, it ranges from 20 to 500 cases. And when you look at the fellows doing less than 20 cases per year, you can see it's going to take them quite a journey to get onto this learning curve. And this, this, this paper here shows getting people to reduce their revision rate actually is based on several things, which include patient selection, but also experience. Now, this is a paper by Dr. Zaltz looking at what are the common causes of hip arthroscopy failure? So all of them are actually based on the understanding of three-dimensional anatomy. So 40% or up to 40% camera section, 4% due to pincer lesions, and 50% due to combined cam pincer lesions. And when I evaluated this literature, I interpreted that this is a challenge of interpreting the scope view with the two-dimensional feedback we get in the operating room, which in this case would be a C-arm. And then further challenges is uh, shown by Philippon and Dr. Harris is when you're looking at a hip laterally, but you're viewing images in the AP plane, and then you add in the challenge of hand position and what hand dominance you have, how do you accelerate yourself along the learning curve? And of course, Dr. Harris showed that the dose of radiation that you use during surgery actually decreases only after you've done 100 cases. So there's no question that uh, hip arthroscopy being very challenging is not only complex and multifactorial, it's associated with both a prolonged and a very costly learning curve. So how do we accelerate the learning curve so when we're actually treating patients, we're actually treating them as opposed to practicing on them? So enter the world of simulation. What is simulation? It's a model that really mimics the operation of a proposed system, which actually provides evidence and the ability for you to make decisions in a very safe environment while giving you data on your performance that you can react to. So enter the world of immersive virtual reality. And what this is, is it's a computer-generated simulation <clears throat> where someone interacts with a fully artificial three-dimensional environment. And this allows it to be accessible, convenient, and no-risk education where you can practice certain things that you wouldn't be able to do unless you're doing it on an actual patient. So to give you some perspective, and I want to share this uh, aspect of this VR hip surgery simulation that's been built. So when we want to learn CAM impingement uh, procedures and how to address them, you want to establish a series of learning objectives as listed here, and then focus on the skills that actually will help you become a more proficient surgeon. And you can see them listed here, positioning, fluoroscopy, and then the diagnostic and the management aspect of it all. So I'm going to walk through this video showing this is some work we've done with Conmed. There's no volume as I'm going to talk through this. Here's a, here's a complete digital environment that I'm interacting with, which is fully personalizable, meaning that I can actually position it so it's ergonomically sound for me. I can take as many C-arm images as I want because there's no radiation. I can actually understand what it means for the hip to be under traction and what maneuvers I need to use to get into the central compartment, the external compartment. What is adduction or abduction due to that view? And if you think about this, this is the things that we're visualizing during surgery that we actually can't get assessment of unless we've done 100, 200, 500 cases. This next part actually shows me trying to target this cam lesion using this spinal needle. And again, I'm getting real-time feedback and I'm making decisions, enhancing my skill to try to identify that lesion successfully. And you can see I've missed there intentionally, but then I get the reinforcement of seeing where I've made the errors and how far off I was to identify that cam lesion with this spinal needle. And then I can then parallelize that experience by bringing that three-dimensional bone to this C-arm image, again, driving a deeper understanding that we try to do and create mental models on our brain to decipher. 
the area of the concept of triangulation is extremely important. So this is me using a 70 degree scope. I'm going to resect the cam lesion. And I'm actually going to, I'm thinking that I'm actually resecting an adequate amount of this. But then again, I can pull this out. I can evaluate it, use the VR-based radiation and actually draw and connect the two, two dimensions to three dimensions in this virtual space, as shown here. The last thing, of course, which is important is I can be anywhere in the world and we can offer education without borders, whether you be in Europe, Asia or elsewhere. And then, of course, I'm measuring in detail exactly what I did. And you can see I've actually measured a considerable amount of healthy bone in that scenario. Now, does this actually work? So there's some really good literature. This is out of Ireland comparing novices to experts and evaluating how much cam of lesion they've resected. And you can see even in the expert group on the far right, they actually resected not an insignificant amount of healthy bone, whereas the novice and uh, intermediate learners actually resected quite a bit of normal bone. These two papers have shown direct translation and actually senior residents when assessed on cadavers, does VR actually translate skill? And it does. And in fact, it can actually reduce error by up to 50% in the latter study. This is some new research which I'm excited to share coming out of Columbia and Toronto, where they actually compared virtual reality directly to cadavers and show that there was actually no difference in knowledge acquisition or technical skill, but certainly significant and, uh, not, and dramatic cost difference comparing the two. The last part I want to share with you is what about this global perspective? How do we use such a powerful technology, which can be accessible anywhere in the world? And currently, this software has been used in over 40 countries. And I'm going to share some very high-level data that's unpublished on this particular topic. So as mentioned, we can measure quite a few things when we're doing CAM arthroscopy measurements. How much of the lesion was removed? What step do people spend the most time on? And how many x-rays do they use in that step? Again, driving the concept concept of safety that much further. And again, high level numbers, but if we look at all the sessions that we've seen with hip arthroscopy, there's been 54,000 virtual x-rays taken, but the next part's actually quite interesting because we can actually show an improvement of the number of x-rays that people have used when they come back and do the same procedure again, showing and demonstrating that people are in fact are learning and they're driving that three-dimensional knowledge deeper. And then of course, how, many, how often do people interact with the scope uh, on the bone? You can see there that on average, Average, it's 3.4 per session. And then just to get a little bit granular on this before my last few slides is that if we compare surgeons to residents, and you can see we've had over 4,000 people in this session, the attempts to localize, as you would expect, are lower for the experts compared to the residents. But even with these experts, not the entire cam lesion was resected. So again, driving into that three-dimensional comprehension, which is the question should be is how do we learn that in an accelerated way? Does it translate to the operating room? This is a case report published in JAWS showing that when a trainee, someone who's never done a complex or a, significant, a severe slipped epiphysis, can that person execute a case in the actual operating room after practicing in a VR? The answer in this case report is yes, using 10 times less radiation compared to the index procedure, which was done by an actual surgeon, and then less surgical time. 
Now, I think, you know, one of the one of the values of this technology is it allows for global education and evaluation and subsequent research. And so there's partnerships happening with several societies as shown here. And I'll summarize by saying this is a really exciting and emerging technology. And we all know that surgery is complex. Surgical education is complex and multifactorial. How we learn, however, is proven, effective, and evidence-based, and this is based a lot on the psychology literature. Virtual reality is maturing, yet very exciting, and the one thing it offers is this concept of whole task training, where it captures the entire patient experience. The early validation studies have been shown that it's efficient and certainly cost-effective, and it can augment and accelerate learning curves with a significant both education and research application globally. And with that, I want to thank you very much. Uh, we have uh, 10 minutes for discussion times. Uh, Maria Roxana will moderate uh, for the discussion. Hi, Prepe. Are you ready? Hello, everyone. Thank you, Sushi. Thanks once again for the invitation to Izaku's organization. And congratulations to all the panelists. A very good uh, and and brilliant presentations. So I will start here. We had a very interesting question in the chat. Um, uh, Vikas started to answer a little bit, but maybe we can come here in discussion. Um, a colleague asked about what would be needed to develop a national registration, national registry in another country. So I would like to complement this question uh, with what would be the main difficulties and obstacles to to perform one in another country? Uh, I think that's, uh, to answer that question comprehensively, we probably need another three webinars that this, of course, could possibly host and we, we'd answer that. But, but in short, uh, and jokes apart, I think the most important bit uh, that you need is the willingness from the surgeons who are performing this procedure to contribute their data uh, to a national registry. Because without the surgeons contributing the data, uh, a registry is of no value. And if the government is funding your registry, then you possibly uh, ideally need a mandate uh, from the government that all the data or all the procedures uh, being done under government funding actually should uh, be recorded in this registry. So that's probably the first thing that we uh, we are struggling with in terms of getting mandations, uh, and that would be my advice. The second bit is uh, where uh, you may face problems is uh, getting the patients to fill in their questionnaires because all these are problems uh, at six months, 12 months, so compliance from the patients. And ideally, uh, possibly hiring somebody right from the beginning to chase patients up uh, at six months, 12 months, two years, five years, whichever, whatever uh, time points you want, right from the beginning is possibly going to be helpful as you're beginning to realize from our registry. And possibly the final point I'd say is that in a registry, do not go for extended data sets, go for minimal data sets. Because uh, if, if you are wanting patient engagement and surgeon engagement, you want to keep it as simple as possible. And uh, it takes the least amount of time for the patients and the surgeons to fill that. You can always have extended data sets if you want to nest randomized control trials in the registry. But when you're just starting off a registry, keep it simple uh, and keep it small. I think so th those three would be my 
top tips specifically based on the issues that we have had to solve uh, as we've gone along making our own registry better. Okay, thank you. Uh, here we have a few questions in the Q&A. Um, there is a question here to Dr. Harris. Uh, Daniel Lopez was asking, what is your opinion about capsule closure and if you close it uh, in every patient? Yeah, so that's a great question. And uh, I, I close probably 99% of my capsules. It is probably once every six months or so that I don't close one. And the majority of non-arthritic individuals, um, I think minimizing native anatomy disruption with just small inner portal and T or mini T capsulotomies is necessary. But then if you open it up, you should close it. Um, I think the literature has borne that out that capsule closure, complete capsule closure does better. Um, Shane knows original study that looked at complete versus partial uh, was the first to do it. And most follow-up studies have revealed the same. And so uh, I close most of them. I use non-absorbable suture or tape uh, for the actual closure simply because it may take longer than four to six weeks, which is the typical absorbable suture absorption time. So I'll use non-absorbable suture for a T. I'll put three sutures in the T and for the inner portal, I'll usually put one on each side of the T for small inner portals. If it's beyond 15 millimeters, I'll add a third. Okay, great. Here we have a question for all the panelists. So um, it is being questioned, what do you think about the need of computer-aided cam resection to perfect the resections? Would it be a big step forward? I think we could start with, uh, with Danny, Danny Goel. Uh, thank you, Maria. I think it's a really good question. These technologies augment our experience in the operating room, but the one thing they don't do, and this is also relevant to artificial intelligence, is they don't offer judgment. And judgment comes from experience, and experience comes from being in the operating room doing cases. So I think while it's, it's a really positive step towards identifying and resecting a lesion, I think we still have to use judgment to decide if whether the computer is correct or not. So I think it's a positive direction, but it doesn't take away the need to still require some form of education experience. Femi, would you like to comment something? And I would echo Danny's, um, you know, approach. I think, um, you know, these, these interventions will assist humans and all of us surgeons get better. I don't think they essentially will replace um, all of what we do and the skill that it takes. And, there is still value in, in going to labs and having some tactile feedback, but I think you can really accelerate your learning curve and really improve your skill level by introducing and including a lot of the technologies that are emerging, such as Precision OS. So I think it's more of a working together approach than a you know uh, this or that or either or approach. Okay, Vikas uh, and Joshua would like to comment something since it was an open question. That means a, um, a, a fair bit of my own PhD was looking at navigated hip arthroscopy and the randomized control trial that we did clearly showed that uh, navigation did better in terms of resection accuracy uh, than an experienced hip arthroscopist as well. So there's no doubt that adding technology will, will make your operations more accurate. But clearly navigation was not uh, for mass usage and possibly uh, robotic arms, milling arms would be the way forward. 
But I think more importantly, what we need to be able to understand is what is it and how much is it that we are trying to resect is getting an absolutely spherical femoral head the goal or is reducing the contact pressures as we've seen on discrete element analysis the goal? And they are two different things. So I think the planning is where uh, most of our efforts are going on at the moment because planning what to resect is uh, is more important than than getting tools in to resect that amount because at the moment we don't even know exactly how much to resect. Yeah, and the only thing that I would add to that um, is we need to define as a community, as a preservation community, what an optimal cam correction means. Uh, that is uh, really an, an incredible priority because, uh, you know, truly trying to make a spherical femoral plasty, um, I, I don't know what that means. And I think reducing offset and making it better, um, you know, is, you know, the, the worst enemy of good is better. And so sometimes, you know, trying to get a spherical femoral plasty, you can overcorrect individuals. They can become unstable. And as one of the slides that, that I had, uh, it shows that those patients do very poorly. And the only real solution for that is an arthroplasty and sometimes in a very young individual. So I think, um, we have a lot of work to do. And I think the title of this webinar was, uh, what answers are we missing and what questions exist? And I think that's a big one. Great. Here we have the next question from Miguel Sanchez Otamindi. Uh, I think this is for you, Joshua. Uh, what happens when we make the peripheral compartment first and as part of the technique we think the orbicular area yeah so um so going peripheral compartment first um you know whether that be in or out of traction is a very reasonable approach um it's not how i do it uh, routinely but i have done it a handful of times and I think that if you make a vertical longitudinal parallel capsulotomy, then you can get into the joint safely. And I think if you use your fluoroscopy, you can remain above the zona orbicularis. And I think the one way you can ensure that you're above is what I'll do with every case is I'll put a needle into the joint and I'll make an air arthrogram. And when you have your air arthrogram, it will outline the line of the zona orbicularis. And then if you remain above that line, you'll be safe and not violate your zona. Mm, interesting, interesting tip. Uh, next, we have a question to Professor Kanduja um, from Kartik Logishit. I excuse myself if I'm not pronouncing correct your name, huh? but thanks for the question. Uh, he's asking, based on the fantastic registry data, should there be annual minimum case volumes per surgeon? Uh, this is a strategy taken by some countries, UK and France, for procedures such as unicompartimal knees and hip resurfacing? Thank you. Uh, I think that's a very good question, Kartik. Um, the answer is I do not have the evid enough evidence to actually propose that, that there should be a minimal number that surgeons should be performing. Uh, we are in the process of evaluating uh, surgeon volume versus outcomes. And once we've got a bit more evidence on that, then I could actually conclusively propose that. But at this moment in time, I don't have enough evidence to uh, to propose that. Okay. And here we have another question. 
this I think would be a little bit open. Huh? Don't you think that in the future uh, we should get dynamic imaging evaluation for every patient to know where and when each patient is having impingement in order to have a personalized bony resection? Maybe Danny could help could help us with this one. So dynamic imaging evaluation, I think it's still, so it's, we're still trying to interpret two-dimensional to 3D. So I think it doesn't take away from the fact that we somehow need to bridge the gap of what a three-dimensional lesion looks like on a femoral neck and what a pincer lesion looks like on the acetabulum. So while I think it adds to it, I just wonder how much of the gap closes with the interpretation of addressing both. And, you know, not being a hip arthroscopist, being a shoulder surgeon, if I draw that parallel, it's, I don't know the answer to that, but it's a really good research question to see what, what additional value it adds uh, to the resection. And maybe somebody on the panel who uses dynamic imaging could speak to that. So I, I can potentially help that. Uh, if you look at the definition, then uh, it's essentially a motion dependent uh, condition, right? The more dynamic analysis we get, the better it's going to be. So uh, most of our patients will get the collision analysis done. Uh, but although there are some issues with that software, uh, some companies are trying to address that, especially on the soft tissue side. Uh, but the more dynamic imaging that you have, the better it's going to be. And uh, if you are dealing with patients who... Uh, who are professional athletes or uh, engaged in high-level sporting activities like rugby or football, then the more uh, dynamic imaging that you have for these patients, because in specific positions they'll be struggling, the better it's going to be and the better you're going to be able to treat those patients. So uh, my answer would be yes, but we do not have the best dynamic uh, analysis available at the moment because there are assumptions that are made in every model and uh, they're not without problems. That's the issue. Okay, thank you. Uh, Femi, we have a question for you. Uh, so Sepper Ekiari is asking, so um, thank you all for the great talks. Dr. Ayeni, illustrated the importance of addressing hip disease throughout the patient life course. How can we bridge hip preservation research with both pediatric hip and arthroplasty research to get a better understanding of the gaps that some patients fell into? Yeah, I, great question, Sefer. I think um, we all face that. Let me give the simple example of somebody who is maybe uh, 49 with mild to moderate osteoarthritis comes to see you in clinic and says, I, I don't want a hip replacement. I'd like to have you know, preservation surgery or labor repair and just to see how much um, that, that uh, lasts versus you know, going down the arthroplasty route. So to solve that you know, um, research gap, I think it really involves having a, a hip team where you have a preservation surgeon and an arthroplasty surgeon and working hand in hand with patients to really ask those important questions. And years ago, we did a time trade-off analysis where we had patients who had osteoarthritis and said, hey, listen, if we can do a hip arthroscopy and labor repair and some joint preservation, chondroplasty, would you um, take that as opposed to having an arthroplasty as long as the arthroscopy gives you 10 years? And the vast majority said, 
Absolutely, yes. And then we said, what about if you only got six months? And the vast majority said no. And so we kept on trading it off and saying, okay, what about nine years? Mostly yes. And then one year, mostly no. So somewhere in the Canadian population, it was about four and a half years where we had the majority of uh, individuals saying, well, that's a reasonable time frame to have preservation that is reasonably pain-free from. So I think that really, you know, applying cultural norms and acceptance behavior to some of these metrics is important to find out just how well patients would accept this. But importantly, I think to, to get to the base of your question, to understand where the gaps in preservation and reconstruction start, it really is collaboration across jurisdictions and specialties and working together to figure out how we can solve this, you know, uh, collaboratively and looking at early young adult arthroplasty and older or slightly older arthroplasty arthroscopy rather to see where our intervention stops and where the interventions for arthroplasty start. So it's very interesting, but does require collaboration across teams. Great. And um, I take advantage for me because the next question, I think that you would be uh, glad to answer. Um, is from Pierre Laboudie. Is there strong data to support how we should repair the labrum? loop versus translibral, uh, how much tension, et cetera? I think the, the best data we have has been Mark Philippon's series from Vail looking at a vast, large amount of patients and didn't find a significant difference between a loop repair or a pierced repair or, or base stitch. And, you know, there are some arguments that if you do a, a, a base stitch repair um, or, be, you know, pierced stitch repair, you're traumatizing the labor multiple uh, fixation points, which is potentially damaging. At the same time, um, the loop repair, you have a loop across the cartilage, across the labrum, which, you know, does have a cartilage interface. So maybe the abrasion risk of the suture is a problem. Um, but in short to midterm, we haven't found a difference. Now, as far as tensioning, it is eminence-based, not evidence-based at this point. We all have our ways of tensioning. But I think that really, once you repair your labrum, do take some time to reduce the hip and see how the suction seal mechanism is working visually to confirm that you have good labral integrity and a suction seal restoration. That's the best of what we have, right? And um, ideally you can compare to the contralateral side if you were doing a bilateral case, but that's not possible, of course, in the vast majority of cases. But I think that basically do the best labral treatment you can do, whether it's base versus blue, because as of now, there is no advantage as far as results of one versus the other. And uh, thank you. And Joshua, and in your opinion too, would be very valuable here since you talked about biomechanics. Yeah, I agree exactly with what Femi said. The largest study that's out there from Dr. Philippon's database is that there is no difference between the labral base refixation and the loop. Um, the multiple points passing through the labrum, sometimes to try to get that optimal labral size, it's very hard. If the labrum is too small, there's no room. If the labrum is too big, um, the labrum remains unstable. And so finding an optimal size for the labral base refixation is very challenging. And so um, the vast majority of labral repairs that I perform are a loop stitch. Um, and it's very uncommon for me to perform a labral-based refixation pierced stitch. Okay. And Joshua, a question for you, since you mentioned about the, the analysis from femoral version that uh, we, we should include these in our routine. Uh, and what do you think about the spine-hip relationship? Do you think that's something to come to our practice to? 
Yes. Uh, the spine hip relationship has been something I think since 1983 where Ophierski published the hip spine syndrome. And so, um, 40 years this year that we've known about the correlation between hip arthritis and disc disease and also facet arthrosis. And remember that's a correlation, not a causation. And so, you know, time will tell and further evidence will show if, you know, hip morphology or pathomorphology can potentially translate stress across the SI joint into the lumbar spine and vice versa. Patrick Birmingham from Chicago has published a study. It was a cadaver biomechanical study that has shown with increasing sizes of a cam morphology, stress will transfer across the pubic symphysis. And this is much more of an issue with core muscle injury, but the analogy would remain posteriorly that, you know, the SI joint has very minimal motion. And so therefore, if it translates across from a cam pathomorphology or from low femoral version, then stress will transfer up the kinetic chain. Um, Hal Martin from Dallas has published this with ischiofemoral impingement. He's placed sensors across the entire thoracolumbar spine and has shown that a mechanical block in the ischiofemoral space will translate to basically every level up to T1. And so we know that the hip spine syndrome is real. Um, clinical outcomes are still uh, coming out and hopefully over the next decade, we'll learn more about it, but at least biomechanically uh, we have uh, reasonable evidence to now suggest that the hip spine syndrome has a real um, support and a real base. Okay. Okay. Uh, thank you. Uh, there is one more question here from Manuele Giovanni Mazzolini. Uh, talking about training, uh, should a hip arthroscopist be also a PAO surgeon? What do you think? I think that's an open question for you guys. Who would like to talk first? Femi, maybe you. <laughs> you know, um, philosophically, I think that in the ideal scenario, that'd be great. But the reality is um, both have significant technical challenges. And I tend to favor more of a team-based approach where you have somebody who is really good at arthroscopy um, working on your team, somebody who's really good at reconstruction, revision reconstruction, uh, working with your team, and then somebody who's really facile with open surgical techniques working. So that's how we've organized it. Um, but oftentimes you will be limited by the system you work in, the hospital you work in, some of the different compensation variables and your jurisdictions also impact what you can and cannot do. And even legislation based on how many cases you do annually will impact that. But the approach I have currently is to have a siloed but integrative approach where arthroscopist does this, reconstruction surgeon does this, open surgeon does this, and we meet together and talk about this. And that's how we also have our fellowship that we're designing. It's really having those independent pillars of excellence and everybody pitching in as to what they're really, really good at. So you have an exceptional experience at each step of the way. Can one person do that all? I know few who can, including Dr. Kanduja or Mr. Kanduja, who certainly is one of the rare experts who can do multiple of those in a very expert way. But, you know, us mere humans and mortals are maybe not as skilled. He's fantastic. Great. And Vikas, what would be your opinion? I think I, I won't go into procedures, but what I'd say is that if you're embarking on hip preservation or hip surgery, then stick to hips and just, just the approach in the UK. Uh, don't, don't pick up three or four joints or just become an arthroscopist of three joints. Just because you will have, you can take the patient right from uh, a pathology right through to the end. 
So if some patients who are sitting on the borderline, you're not forced to do a hip arthroscopy on them because you can't do a hip arthroplasty on them and vice versa. So that then allows you to actually make a clear judgment on that patient because you can offer both an arthroscopy or a joint replacement. So joint-specific uh, or pathology-specific uh, approach would be a better approach. But uh, I've obviously been uh, in the system in the UK, so I've uh, got that automatically. It's not necessarily so in the US or possibly even in Canada. And Joshua, I think that to close. Yeah, so um, I, I agree with both points that were just made. We have a team approach here. Um, I am a exclusively hip surgeon. Uh, I don't dabble in other joints. And that's what I teach my residents and fellows. If you're going to perform hip preservation surgery, you have to have proper decision-making so making good choices who belongs in the operating room, an excellent technique. And you have to have both of those. It's, it's an and statement, not an or statement. And I think that your decision-making skills and your technical skills are best when you stick with just the hip. When it comes to the technical aspects, I think I need to know who belongs in an arthroscopy OR and who belongs in an open preservation OR, specifically PAO. So I have a partner that does my PAOs and I do the arthroscopy. And so um, there are very different skill sets. They're very different training. And uh, I think having that siloed, that team approach um, really uh, works well. Um, it's, a, uh, it's a unique situation where a surgeon can perform arthroscopy, uh, PAO, surgical dislocation and arthroplasty. And I think I can count on one hand, the number of individuals that can successfully do that. And I think that um, it is the rare individual that can do it, but hip preservation surgery, you really shouldn't dabble. Um, if you're going to do hips, stick with just hips. Great. So Maria, could you, could I'll ask the question, Maria, if that's okay. Sorry. Oh, go ahead. Ah, yes, I would have a question to Danny, if, uh, if, I, if I may. Uh, Danny, I, I found very interesting the, the virtual reality education. It's always fascinating. And I would like to ask one of the difficulties that I think that the trainees have during the learning curve is how to manage, how to deal with the smooth tissues, things, the capsule and the blood, all these things, like you know where you need to go, but there's always something appearing in, in front of you. And the, the virtual reality could, could create this obstacle, obstacle, obstacle ah, this difficulty to the, to the training. So it's, it's still immature in that regard? to allow bleeding to happen or to allow you to navigate through soft tissue. But I think there's no ceiling right now to the technology and that's how fast the competing power is doubling. So I think the future will be much more indicative of that type of potential, but it's not off the horizon, I would say. And it's a really good question. Okay, thank you. I think that Vikas had a, a question to, to all, all of you. Please go ahead, Vikas. Thanks, Rhea. So a uh, question to all the panel members of faculty, really. Uh, if you had one question that you wanted to answer over the next five years, what would it be? Daniel, we'll start with you. So the, the one question that I would ask is, can we truly benchmark what it means to be a proficient hip arthroscopist? Because I don't, I don't think that's an answered question currently. Thanks, Danny. Sochi? 
if you had to answer one question, one important question over the next five years, what would it be? Uh, yeah, that is very important. Uh, I'm thinking uh, this uh, webinar doesn't contain uh, regenerative medicine, uh, like uh, uh, stem cell therapy or PRPs. I think uh, uh, the, those kind of uh, uh, regenerating medicine uh, stem cell therapy is really important for uh, in this our field. So maybe five years, next five years, uh, we need to develop uh, stem therapy combined with hip arthroscopy or PLs. Thanks, Sushi. Femi? No, great question. I, I, you know, you gave a short five-year window, but my dream study would be a large population-based study looking at, you know, individuals and looking at those who have FBI asymptomatic or symptomatic and just really taking a longitudinal approach and imaging them every decade or two to see what happens at 30 or 40 years and really having an understanding of the natural history so that the cardiac surgeons have, you know, conducted their studies over time to see, you know, who gets asymptomatic FBI, who does get symptomatic FBI, and what are the variables that make bony anatomy more symptomatic in some and not others. How can we understand the other variables, whether it's inflammation, family history, activity, that contribute to why some are so symptomatic and some are not. And I think that'll be a huge leap forward in understanding the development of osteoarthritic changes. Thanks. Josh? Yeah, um, I, th I have two, if you'll permit me. And one takes off of semi. I think prediction of symptoms um, is huge. Uh, that's definitely one. And one that uh, we mentioned earlier, what's a normal femur? Uh, what is a proper, accurate cam correction? The, those are the ones that I would really hope to answer. And, uh, and our moderator, uh, Maria, what would be your question? <laughs> yes, um, I, I go with Femi. I think that um, try to understand uh, what, um, I think why, try to understand why people with morph uh, FAI morphology, for example, some people would present symptoms and others no. So I think that we just would need to understand this better because I think that we don't have this answer yet. Thank you all. Okay, uh, I have a question to uh, Joshua uh, or everybody. Uh, do you have you experienced uh, the capsular reconstruction in case of a large capsular defect? Uh, and uh, what in indication for capsular reconstruction? So, I have experienced this. Uh, I've seen this in the multiple revision setting. And I think you're really faced with two options. Um, if the capsule is mobile and you can repair it, um, I, I would like to repair it without tension. If you cannot mobilize it sufficiently, um, then I think that you are forced to do a reconstruction. And if you do that, it's better in my hands with an open approach. Um, and uh, I would use an Achilles. I think Femi actually has published a really nice, I've seen his video actually on this. And that's the exact same technique that I use. If the patient is older and they have multiple comorbidities in their hip, uh, 
Um, I am actually not opposed to having an arthroplasty discussion. You know, we know that it, within orthopedics, you get it right the first time and that's your best chance of having a good outcome. And the more revisions you do, your Delta is increasingly smaller. And so, um, that's where, um, I actually have a very good discussion, no matter the age. Um, if it's more than two or three surgeries that an arthroplasty may be better than trying to do a home run hero salvage operation, like a capsular reconstruction. Okay. Thank you. I'll fully agree with Josh. The only thing I would say is I still use, Achilles allograft at this point, um, but there are sort of other options, new scaffolds coming out that are apparently, um, you know, potentially as effective, but I completely agree with, uh, with Joshua's perspective on this. Wow, great question, uh, great talk. Okay, I think uh, time is up. Uh, I want to thank you, uh, everybody, for contributing to this webinar. I hope everything is going well with you. Uh, I We look forward to seeing you again in person at East Circus meeting in Boston. Uh, thank you very much for all of you. Uh, I hope enjoy. Okay, thank you, sayonara.